Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. So what are you supposed to do between each Engadget podcast? Wait in silence? I'm Matt Smith, and every morning I walk through the day's biggest tech stories. It's short, relevant, and ready for listening whenever you wake up. Find Engadget Morning Edition wherever you find your podcasts, or ask your smart speaker for the latest news from Engadget. What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the Engadget Podcast. I'm Senior Editor Devendra Hardawar. I'm Reviews Editor Sherlyn Lowe. This week, we're going to be chatting about why the Biden administration is really hungry for big tech critics, in particular, Lena Khan, who he's nominating for the FTC. And we also know that Tim Wu, the creator of the term net neutrality, is going to be joining the Biden White House. So we're going to dive deep into that in a bit. As always, if you're enjoying the Engadget podcast, please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcaster of choice. Leave us a review on iTunes and uh, yeah, share us around. Drop us an email at podcastengadget.com. You can also join us live every Thursday around 10 a.m. Eastern on our YouTube stream. So let's get into our first segment, uh, specifically how the Biden administration is aiming to bring on big tech critics. And I really just wanted to talk about the news this week that he's going to be nominating the antitrust scholar Lena Khan to the mm-hmm. FTC. So to join us and help explain this news uh, for us is senior editor in Gadget, Carissa Bell. Hey, Carissa, how's it going? Hey. Happy to have you here, Carissa. Um, and I've followed your coverage for a while when it comes to social media and everything. So I'm wondering, like, have you been following the Lena Khan news? And do you have any... Any thoughts about how this administration is thinking about big tech? Yeah, um, I think, you know, it's pretty clear. We saw, you know, even when Biden was still just campaigning, like Mm -hmm. we knew that he was going to be really critical of tech. You know, he talked a lot about how he didn't like Section 230, Mm -hmm. how he wasn't a fan of Facebook. Um, So I think we're really starting to see that kind of play out Mm -hmm. now uh, with some of these nominations. Uh, You know, Lena Khan is, is known, you know, she became known in this world uh, after she wrote an antitrust paper about Amazon, you know, she is, you know, these are kind of like really biggest anti-tech experts that you can, you know, be looking for for these positions. Uh, the thing about Lena Khan, like I wanted to like dedicate a chunk of time to this is because uh, she is not your typical le- legal scholar, right? She produced this paper in 2017, uh, a 24,000-word article at the Yale Law Journal called Amazon's Antitrust Paradox, in which she deconstructed why we can really think of Amazon as a monopoly. And that was, she was also really young when mm-hmm. that happened, right? She was like 27. She's just 32 now. So, so like, so I, I just feel really unaccomplished right now whenever I talk <laughs> about young geniuses like this. Yeah. Uh, but her thing, like uh, according to this uh, New York Times profile of her, which everybody should read, um, basically she has this revolutionary idea of rethinking how we think of monopolies. Because since the 70s, government regulators have thought of companies uh, being monopolies if they if they hurt consumers, right? The focus was on consumer harm. Um, but Amazon is a company that's out there providing the lowest prices and really convenient services for everybody. Um, for consumers, Amazon seems like a great thing all around. So how can you call that monopoly? How is that unfair? Her basic argument is that uh, Amazon also has its fingers in so many pies. You know, it is it is dealing with shipping infrastructure, warehouse infrastructure, cloud computing. Um, it is selling products on the same platform where it's selling products from other people. 
And we've seen a lot of stories where Amazon is basically just looking at some of the most popular products that are being sold and just straight Ripping up it off. starts making it themselves mm -hmm. for cheaper. Um, all those seem like bad practices uh, to me. So yeah, where do you stand on this, Krista, and her argument about Amazon as a monopoly? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. And it was definitely, you know, I think controversial in sort of these circles of like antitrust law experts. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, yeah, I think basically, you know, her her stance is that, you know, it's just by the, you know, if you kind of think about the sheer dominance of Amazon, you know, the fact that they, they own the market, they're also making their own, you know, competing products, like you mentioned, mm -hmm. they also, like you said, they're in all these other businesses, you know, it's kind of impossible for any other company to compete with them. And I think we've sort of seen some of these arguments, you know, play out with some of the antitrust interest we've seen recently, where it's kind of looking at like, how how is any competitor able to exist when you have a company mm -hmm. that is so dominant, um, can make so much money, they can afford to undercut any competitor, you know? And so, um, so yeah, you know, it definitely is was sort of considered a, a, a novel argument, but I mean, I think there's, um, you know, I don't know how you get much more legitimate than yeah. the FTC. It, it does seem like, so yeah, so Biden is nominating her to the FTC, so the Federal Trade Commission, and that would put her in more of a place to directly, you know, speak up against all of these things. Um, but I think in that New York Times profile, one thing she was even calling for was for the FTC to actually be able to make to make changes to, you know, maybe not to laws, but to the way businesses are run. Because right now, I believe a lot of things have to get congressional approval. Uh, the FTC has been kind of defanged over the years. And certainly a lot of these big companies do not want more federal oversight you know amazon has succeeded because it's managed to flout a lot a lot of like you know a lot of things uh we, we've seen the news about Be jeff bezos not paying that much in taxes we don't know uh in general corporations pay a lot less taxes proportionally compared to people um amazon has succeeded you know based a lot on uh pushes by the federal government too uh, and one interesting thing uh, for anybody who's not been like following Amazon closely, they don't really report profits that much because they work in this weird model where they take the money they're earning and immediately reinvest it back into the company. So it's kind of a virtuous loop of business growth for them. They just want to be bigger and bigger and bigger. They're not trying to satisfy investors technically, which also makes them a little different from other uh, other companies. Carissa, like, what do you think about this argument when it comes to places like Facebook and Google? as well like all these companies dominate in so many ways and i do think you could make an argument like sure other social networks exist but can you really compete against facebook right i think that's what it comes down to is like you know if your business is structured in such a way that it's essentially impossible for anyone else to compete in any meaningful way you know maybe that does cause, you know, harm to to consumers, even even indirectly. I mean, I think that's the the argument that we saw with the the antitrust suit against Facebook. Um, you know, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how these all play out, and if you know that kind of legal theory is going to be upheld. Like you said, the FTC has been defanged over the years. You know, there's been a lot of um, you know we think very differently about antitrust now than you know obviously like hundred years ago when. Uh, you know, there was a much different kind of point of view, um, you know, but I think there really is this real question of like, you know, should, you know, three, four companies be able to control basically everything? And, you know, is there a line where you can say, okay, well, you know, this, this is too much, you know, and if there is like, where is it? Like, how, mm -hmm. how have we not, you know, gotten to that point yet? I can kind of see like, it almost seems like Lena Khan is calling her shot too. like at the beginning of that paper, she quotes, Ida Tarbell, um, yeah. who's like whose reporting took down Standard Oil a hundred years ago. That is, if you wonder where the name Rockefeller comes from, you know, or why the Rockefellers are very, very rich and well known around New York. Um, she helped take down the way uh, John Rockefeller uh, did his business, right, and helped to her reporting helped the government basically break up Standard Oil. So it seems like she's thinking of Amazon along the same lines. I'll also mention um, in the news too recently, we saw that Tim Wu, the professor who created the term net neutrality, is also joining the Biden White House. He'll serve on uh, the Economic Council, I believe, and he's basically going to be a special advisor. Um, this is a guy that I've also followed for a while too because he has been thinking about 
the way we distribute internet access or you distribute our tech in general. Net neutrality is a term that basically refers to um, making sure that ISPs cannot change or control the way certain traffic is handled on their system. So, uh, and I'll say here that we are owned by Verizon and Verizon has not, you know, has not always been the biggest supporter of net neutrality. I don't think any ISP has been, but more and more we're seeing too, like uh, AT&T and other companies, like now that they're joining with other, with other conglomerates, like they can offer things like discounts to Disney or discounts was AT&T's other service. That's HBO Max, I guess, right? Like it's all Warner Media. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they can announce that. Um, they can make it so that your, you know, bandwidth from one service does not eat into your monthly bandwidth cap because it's a white labeled service or something, which again sounds kind of good for consumers, but on the whole is very bad for the state of the internet and the way we regulate these uh, you know, these things. I have you followed Tim Wood at all, Carissa? Because he has been doing this work for a very long time too. Yeah, I have. Um, he also wrote a, a fascinating book called The The Attention Merchants mm-hmm. that's, you know, all about sort of, uh, I guess, what we now would call like the attention economy of like how, how companies kind of keep us sort of hooked on, on their services and, and stuff like that. And um, and yeah, and he's obviously like very uh, uh, known on and antitrust and, and net neutrality and, and these other important issues. Mm hmm. I'm wondering, what do you think these moves like between Tim Wu coming back because he was actually uh, he was part of the Obama administration's Economic mm-hmm. Council too. He's also publicly admitted that uh, they could have done more to really uh, be stronger with antitrust or push against antitrust, especially when it comes to a lot of mergers. Like the whole big tech implosion or you know rise happened during the Obama administration, right? It was post the 2008. Uh, economic crisis. It was as startups were blowing up, uh, people, you know, Facebook acquired Instagram for a billion dollars and then to like ramp that up completely with WhatsApp and everything. Um, I feel like he is also taking the learnings from, I don't know, they just didn't push hard, hard enough there. What do you think uh, the moves, both for Tim Wu and Lena Khan, like what do you think it means for the next four years of policy? Does it have an impact on the next 10 years? Is it different than the way we've been thinking about big tech over the last decade? I think it definitely could. I think, you know, the, the main thing is that, you know, these are really serious people who who know their stuff very deeply. You know, they're sort of, you know, mm-hmm. what I, I want to think of as, you know, sort of wonkish people that really understand the, you know, the policies, but also have like a deep understanding of how these companies operate, you mm-hmm. know, what the issues are. I think, you know, in the past, that's kind of been one difference is if you look at maybe um, you know, in the, the past, the way that the the government maybe looked at these kinds of deals is, you know, without the sort of deep understanding of like what these companies' business models were, how, sure. you know, what those sort of downstream effects were. Um, so like, yeah, sure. Like Google's great company, you know, that seems fine. Um, whereas, you know, I think now you have people who kind of understand the whole picture. So, you know, I think if you were an executive at one of these companies, you're probably starting to... Um, to notice. And, you know, I would think be, be a little bit worried about, you know, where these, where this could go. Yeah. I mean, we've seen, was it over the past couple of years, we've seen antitrust hearings uh, where the government has basically brought in big tech. And I think a lot of those chats have just been outright embarrassing in some respects. Like a lot of it was Republicans saying like, why, why are you censoring us when all the data shows they're not, yeah, um, always. but also older folks asking for phone help basically. Um, <laughs> Yeah, just a little disappointing. And a lot of Democratic politicians, like, they weren't perfect either, but at least they were trying to, like, hold the feet, hold these companies' feet to the fire mm-hmm. a little bit. And it was Facebook, um, Google, and everybody just couldn't really, didn't really know how to take it. Uh, what is happening today? Because I know Jack Dorsey, Mark Zuckerberg, and Sunder Pichai uh, are going to be testifying before the House Energy and Commerce Committee. We're going to be covering that in Engadget and on our YouTube channel. How is it different from last year's uh, antitrust hearings? Yeah, so this hearing is uh, about social media's role in misinformation during the election and during the pandemic. And I think kind of the really crucial thing here is that um, this is the first time that the, obviously these CEOs have been in front of Congress yep. several times now. Um, this is the first time that that's happening since the January 6th um, insurrection at the Capitol, which we now know we have a much fuller understanding of like the, the role that, um, you know, companies like Facebook played in those events. So I think it's going to be definitely the tension I think will be even higher 
Um, you know, like you said, obviously it's always a little bit of a circus when these CEOs came from the Congress. <laughs> well, you know, I'm sure uh-huh. um, the Republicans want to know why why Donald Trump was banned. Um, you know, why? I, I to- <laughs> don't know why. I have no reason to really point to that. Yeah. Um, isn't How sorry? Does, I, yeah, I, I I saw yesterday. It sounded like Zuck had a proposed change to to make to Section two thirty that he might bring up later today. Is that true, Carissa? Oh yes, he um you know as a, he had uh, some what did he call it like a thoughtful uh, reform of uh-huh. Section two thirty, um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> which uh, he he is basically proposing that you know rather than um, you know take it away completely that companies should basically be required to have some kind of moderation practice in place. And, you know, what, what exactly that looks like can be, um, you know, set by some, some third party um, that basically says, you know, if your company, you have some, you know, so, so sort of system in place where if you're, you're trying to catch, you know, all of the worst stuff, mm-hmm. um, you know, potentially illegal content, you don't have to actually, you won't get punished if you miss something, of course. And uh, um, so can, can we explain impractical. a bit about what Section mm-hmm. 230 is actually? Sorry to yeah, interrupt, yeah. Um, because I think that is important here. Chris, did you, like, how do you how do you think of Section 230? How would you describe it to our listeners? Yeah, I mean, the easiest way is that it's a, a part of a 1996 law that basically gives uh, says that tech companies, internet companies, internet platforms uh, can't be legally liable for what their users do on their platform. So it's kind of, you know, a really, uh, it's considered a really foundational mm-hmm. uh, law of the internet, that, you know, as we know it, because basically allows, you know, a company like, like Google to, you know, create an open platform and let people kind of uh, make of it of what they want without sort of having to worry about, you know, every little thing that people say and whether or not they're going to get sued over it. Mm-hmm. Gotcha, gotcha. And I think what's been ironic, too, is that basically the past few years have been a lot of like conservative and Republican politicians saying we got to we got to remove section 230. It is harming everything where they have a fundamentally, I'd argue a fundamentally misunderstood, like they, they are not really understanding how this works because if there was no section 230, there would be no comments on web pages. There would be no, like there would be no Twitter. There would be no Facebook because you can't actually produce content or you can't let users produce content because you would be legally liable for it. What, where do you think their argument stands against section 230? I mean, yeah, I think you're exactly right. Like, that's kind of been the the huge irony of it all. They say that, you know, um, Section 230 needs to go away, which, by the way, it's not just Republicans saying that. I mean, Joe Biden yeah, yeah. was pretty vocal about, about that as well. Yeah. But it's, you know, also that would eliminate, you know, everybody's, um, you know, especially if you think about, like, Trump and, and all the issues around, you know, that kind of speech, um, you know, there's no way that companies would be able to give uh, somebody like that a, a platform without Section 230. There would be mm-hmm. a lot of censorship. And probably, meanwhile, basically, it would basically be all censorship, yeah. right? Like there would be no reason as a business why you would let anybody say something on your platform without like a contract yep. and without like saying like, right. okay, you're working for me now, and I can I can I'll vet I have like everything some you say. Over what you're doing. And if you say the wrong thing, you're off. And it doesn't mm-hmm. matter what you think exactly. the wrong thing is. I decide what. Well, yeah, basically. <laughs> anyway, anyway, you know, at the same time, I think there is like a valid argument on the other side that like, well, maybe, you know, companies should, you know, shouldn't be able to just say, well, section 230 lets us do whatever we want and we mm-hmm. have no, you know, greater responsibility. But I think, you know, the, the really hard part right now is like trying to figure out where that line is, you know, what, what they should be responsible for, what they shouldn't, you know, obviously like there's huge disagreements um, on all sides on that. I read the Zuckerberg thing too about him like proposing, hey, maybe we can make a stronger Section 230, right? Yeah, something <laughs> that requires moderation. But I also felt like, huh, why are, why are you doing this? Why are you coming out here volunteering this uh, this little bit of oversight? And it kind of makes me feel like the way I did when we were talking about Google and the way they're basically not going to track you anymore for future ads, right? Mm-hmm. It seemed like he was anticipating even stronger regulatory moves. How do you feel about his proposal? Do you think, like, would that be enough to really help a lot of the problems of misinformation, um, you know, and uh, and hate speech and things like that that we're seeing online? Um, no, not necessarily. I mean, he's saying that every company should be like Facebook, right? Yeah. Like, you know, Facebook has, you know, every chance they get, they talk about, you know, they have this army of content moderators. They've invested in AI. They've spent billions of dollars, you know, ramping up their systems on all these issues. So he's basically saying every company should have to do some version of what we're doing. 
um, which would be great for them because then they wouldn't have to change anything about how they operate. Um, you know, but as, as we've seen with Facebook, like, you know, they have all these systems, they've spent billions of dollars and, you know, there's still a lot of really bad stuff that they don't catch. Um, so I don't know that just having more content moderators, Mm -hmm. which, you know, by the way, there's a whole nother conversation about like, um, you know, what it's actually like to be one of these people who has that kind of job and the, the ethics of that. But, you know, I'm not, you know, I think that it's been pretty clear at this point that we, it's like not an issue, you know, misinformation and hate speech and all these things. Like you can't just moderate your way out of it um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you can't AI your way out of it, at least not, not yet and probably not anytime soon. I like that quote. You can't that's AI your way it. out of it. Um, <laughs> yeah, or moderate your way out of it. That's uh, yeah. that's pretty perfect. Any closing thoughts, Carissa, in terms of what you're expecting or maybe what you'd like to see from when it comes to how we're thinking about these tech companies? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, for me, it's always just the the more, I think the more specific that we can, that, you know, when you watch, whether you're watching like the hearing or some of these proposals, I think sort of like it's all like the more detailed we get, the more useful these kinds of conversations are. You know, I think we're all used to seeing kind of politicians get up there and they have their three minutes or five minutes or whatever it is to like question some of these people. They're just kind of airing like broad complaints about why they hate it and you know maybe trying to like make it a nice soundbite but actually sort of like the most like meaningful um moments in these like tends to come when people can get kind of really drill down into the specifics like have a good understanding of, like what the issues are and like try to you know force an answer because um you know too often you know these people have been uh trained very hard on like how to not answer questions so sort of the more that, you know, we, if we can see them actually kind of trying to like nail down some of these people and like get real, real answers from them on their, their policies, why they are the way they are. I think that's at least going to help move the conversation because I think, you know, just having these hearings doesn't necessarily accomplish anything other than sort of, you know, getting a lot of good uh, sound bites for uh, C-SPAN. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, Sherlyn, yeah. anything else you want to add here? Um, I, mm-hmm. I, I think that compared to, and I don't, it's been a while since we talked about the Trump advisory council, but I remember Elon Musk being mm-hmm. one of the people on there and the selection now on Joe Biden's part, not for his advisory council, but just the people he's choosing to put in places where you know, they can have uh, an impact with what they do, Tim Wu and Lena Khan. Being not people from within the tech industry, being more critics of it is is so much better because people like Elon Musk have a vested interest in, you know, shaping <laughs> things a certain way. Whereas like... How has his online speech been too? Like... Mm. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> so 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 I think it's interesting to see, he, he, you know, the, the choice of academics, critics, people who are very familiar and well versed in the industry and how to work it, but are not like they're not invested in it that way. They're not like a big part of it. Their their livelihood, their profit margins and everything is not from tech doing well, you know, so mm-hmm. that's to me what's heartening to see. Um, from all these choices and, and kind of brings us back to like that original topic of why the Biden admin wants tech critics because that would be fairer, I think, for the general population. Chris Abel, thank you so much for joining us on the Gadget Podcast. Where can we find you on the internet? I uh, find me on Twitter, uh, just uh, my name and BE. And um, yeah, check out our coverage on gadget.com. So I feel like a bit of a policy wonk now. Let's go into some straight tech news. Specifically, I want to talk about this weird thing that happened with Slack this week (laughs) because they announced Slack Connect, a feature that they've been talking about for a while now, which will essentially let you direct message anybody outside of your organization. So for people who aren't quite familiar, the way Slack has worked so far, right, is that you sign into a specific Slack for, say, our workplace here uh, for at Verizon, or you can make a Slack for your friend groups. But talking in between Slacks is not a thing that was really possible. So they announced this feature, and I think immediately everybody was like, hey, wait, this is terrible. Sherlyn, were you following what was going on here? Yeah, I followed it. So what happened was... You know what's funny is mm-hmm. that before the Slack Connect news was announced, like the day before, it, Slack Connect showed up on my Slack yeah, at work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure you noticed too. And I, I was saw like, what is yeah. this? And it clicked through and I was like, oh, you can, 
message other people mm. um so when it got announced i was like wait hasn't this been around but anyway that's besides the point it's just like the inside perspective mm-hmm. of what it's like to live in a journalist's brain <laughs> but anyway um yeah there i didn't really care too much about the potential for abuse of these dm techniques i don't really know like what um like what's the process of inviting someone from outside your organization to chat with you yet like if it's more secure than that but no. it looks like right it looks like it's actually pretty easy it's it's to not great like and i, I think wild. like yeah between everything we've seen on social networks over the past few years right you got to think about the potential for abuse and i think that's mm. the main thing like slack announced this thing which essentially opens the floodgates to people who don't work with you to just slam you in the middle of your work chat to either you have to accept the invitation but people saw that the actual invitation itself has text that somebody could easily just yes, keep spamming you, right. even if you want to, if you don't want to talk to them or if you want to block them. Uh, people could send you abusive invites, um, and even somebody you start talking with, like you don't have much control over how that whole conversation goes. So, mm. yeah, it seems like a it's, bad thing. So almost immediately, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I will say that like that that sort of. Um, invite mm-hmm. format sounds very familiar right it sure. sounds a lot like the way linkedin goes the way like a lot of you know they're allowed to add a message to be like hey i'd love to connect but they yeah. could also say a lot of crazy shit in there yeah um, because I'll, linkedin like is not uh, linkedin is not direct it's chat. not a direct chat yeah 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 so it's like if it's like to, to my email i don't care mm-hmm. i'd like to point out that um microsoft speaking of linkedin right microsoft mm-hmm. actually had a, f- a very similar feature announced in march Mm. Wait, we're still in March too, right? At Ignite uh, <laughs> this year called Teams Connect. It just didn't get a lot of the same attention, I think, because fewer people use Teams. Not but many Teams Connect, teams, yeah. Yeah, Teams Connect basically also does the same thing, Where, but it's similar, it sounds like, where it lets you share channels with people outside of your your organization. So it feels like, or it sounds like the control comes from you mm. sharing to people outside. I would rather have that. I would rather yeah. have that, like the ability to share a room to somebody else, like I'm collaborating with people from another site or another company or something, rather than the direct message, because my God, I we all get enough direct messages. It's it's hell. It's got to stop. And also, uh, the specific uh, ping for Slack, like that note, I feel like is just being embedded in us as dread. Like whenever you hear that, you're like, Ugh, what's, what's I know. happening? Who needs me for I, what? Now, what's going on here, you know? It, I have something so, to say. Uh-huh. This... This puts the mess in direct messages. Okay, we're moving on. That's it. Done with the story. (laughs) (laughs) Do you need more direct messages in your life, Sherlyn? That's my question. No, because Slack seems so. I have too many direct messages already. Too Mm -hmm. many DMs. Too many. Too many. It's just too much. Like the way I deal with messaging (laughs) in the modern world today. Like I have a personal email account. I barely check it. You know, I like yeah, side eye it. It's like, is there anything <laughs> important there? And then no, then okay, I keep going with the rest of my life because it is so hard to keep track of email and work email and all everything you're out on Slack or other Slacks with friends or group chats with friends and yep. personal text. It's too much, too much. So yeah, I, I think it was bad timing for Slack, but also a sign that these companies literally do not think about the basics for the potential for abuse, especially when these companies are so involved in the way we communicate you know so i hope slack takes notice from this yeah before they roll out anything else in the future there was some news from intel this week uh, that i wrote up the new ceo pat gelsinger um he has a bold new plan for this company and i think it's pretty interesting uh so he announced the the new idm 2.0 strategy which is basically their new engineering push um and he says that they're going to be investing 20 billion dollars in two Arizona fabrication factories. So those are places where they're actually going to be making chips. And he also announced that the seven nanometer chips, um, starting with the, which one is this, Meteor Lake chip, uh, is actually going to be arriving in 2023. That one was delayed, I think, initially. We expected it this year. Then they told us it could be coming next year. So it's actually two years out from now. But he acknowledged that Intel has had a lot of production issues, especially when it comes to building 7 nanometer chips. Uh, right now, all of Intel's desktop hardware and a lot of their laptop chips are 14 nanometers. And that just describes the density of the production process. That is an aging process. That's like tech from 2015 that Intel's relying on. Meanwhile, AMD, their biggest competitor, is out here with seven nanometer 
CPUs, you know, and seven nanometer GPUs. Uh, I mm-hmm. believe Apple's M1 hardware, those are five nanometer chips. So the increased density is a sign of just how sophisticated and complex these companies are when it comes to building their chips. Um, it's worth pointing out, you can't directly compare them sometimes because of the way, because of the size of the chip die and all sorts of things. Um, I think technically Intel's 10 nanometer chips, which are now in a, a bunch of laptops, uh, are somewhat comparable to AMD 7 nanometer, but that's just me like speaking right now. Uh, I just think like this is worth pointing out because Intel has been kind of stumbling over the last few years, and we've talked about this. Uh, while AMD has come out there with um, really fast new laptop chips, really fast new desktop chips with the Ryzen uh, 4000, 5000 series, um, Intel is just kind of struggling. And then Apple came out with the M1 chips, completely abandoned Intel, you know, a lot of egg on Intel's face there. And Apple's new hardware is some of the fastest, you know, they're some of the fastest machines we've ever seen. So mm-hmm. this whole push is is Intel saying, okay, we're taking this seriously. We have to do some work to get better now. Do you have any thoughts on this, Sherlyn? Because you cover the PC side of things too. Yeah, I I, I would love to see Intel mm-hmm. catch up. I think it's kind of sad to be like, haha, Intel. <laughs> like for the longest time now. And we've seen from like the even last week we were just talking about Intel's whole like marketing strategy seems to be like we're also this, or like, you know, use Justin Long to be like, he's yeah, a VC yeah. now, ha ha. I would love for Intel to just do good. And excel. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Like, it, it just means good things for the PC market. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, AMD, I think this is the result, clearly, of AMD giving really good competition to Intel. Mm-hmm. And you're just going to see the benefits to a lot of consumers, hopefully soon. I think, like, Intel just realized, like, they're lagging behind. They have to invest more. And also... It sounds like there's going to be more of a push for U.S. manufacturing, too. Uh, we know mm-hmm. the Biden administration has talked about like the chip shortage and what it means that we're relying so much on China and other countries mm-hmm. to produce the hardware that's at the core yep. of all of our, you know, all of our electronics. Um, Intel's plan is to become more of a fabrication giant rather than a company that is building its own stuff and relying on other companies like TSMC. The plan is that they're going to bring, they're going to do work for partners. So in a couple of years, once these two Arizona plants are out there, they want to be a facility where other people will come and build their own chips. And that's a pretty significant shift for them. And I think it's, it's a shift that says we, we know what our bread and butter business is. You know, we're really going to focus on that. Um, they talked about having eventually some plants in Europe as well. So they kind of want a global scale to this. Uh, Intel mm-hmm. will probably not be able to compete too much in Asia because all the major chip companies are there now. Uh, yeah. The funny thing is that despite all this, it's like Intel saying like, hey, we're strong now. We'll take care of ourselves. At the same time, they announced like, oh, we need a lot of help to build these <laughs> seven nanometer chips over the next few years. So actually... Over the next few years, they're also going to be working together with the uh, TSMC to build some of these seven nanometer chips. They're going to be working with partners while at the same time building up their own capabilities. So, hey, maybe this means a better, stronger Intel. Um, mm-hmm. I'll tell you guys, like after listening to Gelsinger talk, uh, his voice is very like radio hosty. Like he's a very smooth <laughs> operator. But I was talking with oh, Aaron so Chris Yeah. He's very smooth. Like he sounds like he's just out there uh, on a game show or something. But talking to Aaron Saporis, like it does sound like this guy, he is an actual engineer. You know, he's somebody who helped design the 486, I believe the Pentium uh, back in the day. So he has like a a strong like sense of what Intel is and what they can actually grow to be. Uh, Aaron wrote up this piece called A Strong Intel is What the Tech Industry Needs Right Now. So check that out, Engadget. Mm-hmm. It's a very lengthy, deep piece that goes into um, kind of what this means. You know, what is, yeah. what is the deeper plan here? How does this set up Intel versus AMD versus Apple versus TSMC and Samsung and every, everybody over the next few years? So mm-hmm. this is big news. It's, it may sound like kind of overly technical right now, but just... Um, Think of it broadly. Intel is investing a lot in building its own chips and building chips for other people. And maybe maybe this is them getting a handle on their destiny mm-hmm. for once because it feels like they've just been racing to catch up to everybody over the past few years, right? Yes. And before you go on, uh-huh. I, I just wanted to shout out. Oh, shout out. I'm trying to <laughs> shout out. get that term out of my vocabulary. But anyway, 
Um, this week to just today, uh, mm-hmm. as we're recording this, uh, Qualcomm just un- announced the mm, Snapdragon Qualcomm. 780G chipset, which mm-hmm. is the first 5 nanometer design process chip in the 700 series portfolio, which means that the potential benefits of that density in transistors uh, could be coming to the slightly cheaper flagship sure. level phones. Uh, which is nice. Nice to see mm-hmm. Qualcomm do that. And uh, we were discussing this in our team Slack the other mm-hmm. day, like what this news means, right? And knowing that the Apple iPhone 12 mini uses the A14, which is, mm-hmm. we believe, I'm pretty sure, is a 5 nanometer chip yep. as well, uh, this gives Android phones the the potential to catch up and close the gap between like Apple's like super high-end chips in its mid-rangier yeah. phones. We'll if you can see. even call the 12 mini that. <laughs> no, the 12 mini is still high-end. It's just smaller. That's all. Like yeah. every all the components yeah. are still high. It starts end. a little bit cheaper than the the yeah. typical 12, but you know. Um mm-hmm. so so that's another bit of an update from the land of chip news even if mm-hmm. it's a bit more mobile than Intel. <laughs> The chip wars are going to be really interesting over the next few years because we're also we talked about the GPU wars, right? That's Nvidia mm. versus AMD. Uh, Intel is trying to get into there too yeah. with their Good new luck. XE GPUs. And if you buy a new Intel laptop and it has like the uh, the Intel Evo sticker on it, I just bought my wife the XPS thirteen two in one. That means it has XE graphics. It means it like can do a lot of different things um, and yes. has good battery life and all sorts of stuff. So. We can have thin and light laptops now that play The Sims and Overwatch and some basic 3D games. I think that's pretty good progress. It's just uh, Apple's still killing everybody. You're talking about the gap between Android and Apple, right? And that's tough. You look at benchmarks and it's like Qualcomm's fastest chips are often significantly slower than Apple's chips from several years ago. You know, there's a huge performance gap there. Yeah, I'd love to see mm-hmm. how the 888 benchmarked against the A14 mostly, mm-hmm. uh, and I haven't done that just because I didn't test an 888 phone yet, I think. <laughs> I, perhaps the S21 uh, Ultra. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, but the 888 might be the closest, I think, to an A14 uh, with its slightly different architecture, but mm, yeah. It's, it's not great. Know, something like, about Apple I and think- the way it runs. As the M1 chips were coming out, people were benching those A14s and everything just oh, yeah. to get a sense of like what Apple's mm-hmm. mobile hardware would be. And everybody was shocked at how fast Apple stuff was. We kind of knew there was a huge performance gap. And Apple also has the benefit of designing chips that are specifically tuned for its software and for the mm-hmm. hardware they're putting into everything. Whereas everybody else is like, I'm going to take this off-the-shelf Qualcomm component and I hope yep. it works together with this other piece of software. Like they're playing yep. Legos while Apple's building like a very custom tuned, you know, it's uh, carving machine. everything out of one block of wood. Whereas exactly. like Qualcomm is like stick, stick, stick. And then it's a whole different thing. It's a whole different <laughs> thing. So yeah, we're going to be following all this. Um, Intel, I think, is known for. I think straight up lying to us is the best way to say it. Like I've covered Intel for pretty much 10 years now and they make a lot of announcements, but they also miss a lot of deadlines. And that's something Mm. people really like people called in and asked uh, the CEO, right? Is like, if we, if you cannot even deliver your own stuff on time, why would anybody partner with you to build something on a deadline? And he was like, they're starting, they are starting a whole new side of the business uh, in Intel foundry services, I believe. Um, so that's going to be a completely separate run business, uh, not tied to Intel's roadmap or anything else. So mm. I'm hoping like they figure out how to manage this and having more chip production in the US and, you know, in Europe too, is going to, is going to be super helpful, especially right now. We don't have enough chips for cars. We don't have enough chips for, <laughs> you know, um, a lot of systems and electrical, electronic components that we're dealing with. So this could be a stop. Uh, this could be a fix for that. Mm-hmm. Real quick, we saw some news. All of a sudden, Microsoft stopped using the Xbox Live branding uh, on the Xbox One and, you know, online. And uh, references to Xbox Live, which is their subscription service that you, you know, you'd pay for to play games online. That's what Xbox Live launched as with the original Xbox, I believe, and certainly beefed itself up with the Xbox 360. Um, now they're just calling it the Xbox Network. So, huh, that's interesting to me. So, like the me. PlayStation yep. Network? Huh, what's that? Which is, is it similar to the PlayStation Network, like a PSN? I mean, the name, sure, but I, <laughs> the thing is PSN mainly exists because Xbox Live existed, right? Like, Microsoft yes, was yes. the first company to say, hey, 
we need a unified way of bringing online gaming to consoles. It was kind of a mess before that. Um, I remember the first time, actually it was the Sega Dreamcast, was my first system that ever went online. And that thing had a, I think it launched with the 33K modem, but I, I got a 56K modem. I was dialing up to phone numbers to play Fantasy Star Online. You know, that was my introduction to uh, multiplayer gaming uh, because my PC at the time was not good enough for anything. So Xbox Live was kind of the successor to all of that and it influenced how Nintendo and Sony and everybody kind of took this market. What we're seeing now is that the Xbox network, uh, they're changing things up because they're not going to be charging anymore for free-to-play games like Fortnite. Uh, before you actually had to pay that monthly subscription service to play a game like Fortnite, which is completely free. And that was a difference compared to every other platform out there. So Microsoft raced to catch up in that respect. And uh, I don't, this probably doesn't mean much moving forward, uh, except the idea that uh, maybe eventually they'll stop selling Xbox Live as its own thing. And maybe they'll move into Game Pass, uh, which is their game subscription service. Uh, and Game Pass Ultimate is the one that includes xbox live uh mm. maybe we will see them pushing more towards that to get people online um yeah we'll see uh, do you have any thoughts on the shirlin i know have you done much uh, online gaming yet on consoles yeah i mean i still don't have a new next-gen console so mm -hmm. no and the whole like xbox game pass thing was one of the the lures and xbox live branding being removed i just was like does this mean there's no more Doesn't like anything. Yeah. yeah it's it just it sounded like it's not going to affect my decision too much or my experience with a new con console too much so no. and you it's have your curious. switch you're yeah. very good with that i do exactly for a while. exactly mm -hmm. well actually i've been playing a lot more with the oculus quest 2 but uh yeah, that's that's a whole that's another conversation. That's a whole other thing. Um, the OnePlus event happened. We kind of hinted at that last yeah. week. You're calling it kind of cringe. I'm wondering yeah. what kind of what kind of cringe is it? You know, what was so uh, rough with this event? Yeah, I know, I know. You know how like last uh, last time we were talking about Samsung's event being like squat lit fam yeet. <laughs> this was the this was light on that. Let's let's just say they never used millennialisms or Gen Zisms. <laughs> But it was cringing like there was a moment where one of the presenters was talking about the OnePlus 9 uh, after another presenter had already explained how awesome the OnePlus 9 Pro was, they thought. Uh -huh. And uh, the, the guy explaining the OnePlus 9 was saying that, oh, of course, you know, we have great cameras too. Look how great this HDR is, blah, blah. <laughs> and then he somehow ends up talking to a clone of himself. Uh, and it, they're explaining to each other why the camera is great, and then they try to high-five, but then the other, he's like, nope, denied, or something. And at some point he goes, and then they show sample pictures of, like, a woman taken with the um, OnePlus 9, and they go, yeah, you know what's the most awesome about this? Not the camera, it's the model. And I was like, ah. Uh very cringy is this their so, first like big yeah. event that they're trying to talk to an international audience because i remember a lot of their launches have mainly been china focused and asia focused right well oneplus is a has always sort of targeted mm -hmm. more international regions than counterparts like i think xiaomi or oppo sure, or sure. realme um you know they've they've always done better i think than those brands overseas so they have a pretty like significant presence i want to say in europe the uk and they're mm -hmm. one of the few here in the u.s that's doing fairly well it's not their first big event they've had events in new york in the past right, uh, right. out of the brooklyn navy yard or something uh we just never really paid as much attention <laughs> a because like we didn't mm -hmm. have that much time to go and cover an event live in person with everything else that usually goes on this time of year um so this time we were able to pay more attention to it because Everyone's at home, and mm -hmm. the OnePlus 9 and 9 Pro are, like, the result of years and years of refining a, a formula that OnePlus is known, and also the Hasselblad or Hasselblad partnership is also, mm -hmm. like, noteworthy news, so we just wanted to, like, give it give it the recognition it deserved. But, uh... That, to your point, though, of OnePlus kind of um, generally being more Asia and China-based, mm -hmm. it showed in the presentation and not in, like, in a way where, like, you know how a lot of keynotes by, like, Google, Apple, Microsoft, mm -hmm. they all try to, like, 
bring out more diverse people、uh-huh, to do the presentations.、Uh-huh. Yeah, no, OnePlus was like two white men and one Asian man, and then and t- a, clone, a person like near the end that、clones. was neither、Basically. white nor male. <laughs> yeah, and also a white clone. So like, I, I,、uh, I get it. Like, I just、uh-huh. was the whole time was like there were there were a lot of Asian people、mm-hmm. and and white people represented, but it felt like not a lot of other people were represented sure, throughout、sure. the keynote. Which bugged me a little bit. Yeah, looking at clips, it reminds me of when, like, we used to go to Computex, RIP, in、Ugh. Taipei,、oh. and、uh, it's usually Asus's big media events、uh, <sighs> where they kind of blow everything out. They're the big, you know, they're the ones swinging all their money around because they're local、mm-hmm. to Taiwan. But <laughs> some of the first ones we covered was just like, is this the Hunger Games? It's just <laughs> like it is like very,、uh, very. Pop, you know,、uh, pompous-looking people in、mm-hmm. very fancy outfits, but it's either、uh, very, very light-skinned Asian people or white people who I think just find a great amount of success by being very white in Asia. Apparently, <laughs>、yes. yeah, they're they're. It looked like the Hunger Games. The it was amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah.、Uh, <laughs> plus, lots of booth babes in in Computex. Lots、still. of booth babes, scantily、yep. clad women whose entire job is to look. Good, I think, and and、mm-hmm. know a little bit about product. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's not great. But that, I mean, to be fair, OnePlus didn't have that, which is I think <laughs> they didn't have that. A low bar, but good news, they didn't、uh-huh. have that. But、uh, the the event was cringe. The phone itself is like kind of interesting, although the starting price wasn't that、uh, great for diehard OnePlus fans. You're used to it being like a sub five hundred or even a five hundred dollar ish phone.、Um, the interesting, I think. Uh, unveil was the OnePlus Watch. We、mm-hmm. knew it was coming, but we found out a bit more about it. Specifically, the most interesting thing to me is the warp charge technology the company built into the OnePlus Watch, which、uh-huh. promises to get you a full day of juice in just five minutes of charging, and like a whole week in twenty minutes of charging, which、uh-huh. for smartwatches today is really really fast. So.、Mm-hmm. Something to look out for and pay attention to, and watching their promo video for this. By the way, like that's playing as we're talking about this. Yes, there was one thing with the OnePlus Watch where it was just like somebody running away from the cops or somebody <laughs>、oh, running away、no. from security. Is that how you're promoting your your smartwatch hardware? Is like it'll it's so good, like it'll survive you、uh, parkouring、Ooh. down <laughs> some stairs as you. It's the watch for parkour. You steal something, yeah. Right, right. I and it's huge. It's a. It only comes in a forty-six millimeter case. That's、uh, big. No other size. Yeah. Yeah. So I. I'm not sure. The price also is very interesting. It's a hundred and fifty-nine U.S. dollars. That's pretty good. When、yeah. it's available here in the U.S. and、uh, it'll last for up to two weeks on light <laughs> use. So so you know it's like Fitbit Garmin territory in、mm-hmm. terms of battery life and price-wise, it's like Fitbit Tracker territory. So. Mm-hmm. It's impressive the price and the battery life and the does it have、uh, an always on screen? That's not clear yet exactly.、Okay. So so that's one of the questions、uh, Nate asked me right after the event, and I was like, oh yeah, I it's not in the spec sheet at all. So、mm-hmm. I'm not sure they they're using a proprietary OS.、Um, so it's not <laughs> clear if yeah, it's not Wear OS, so、mm-hmm. it、uh, doesn't have that feature built in. How do we feel about Android watches at this point? Like I we're waiting I, for them to become Fitbit watches. Is、uh, <laughs> Sure, sir.、Um, so, but what about the Fitbit Watch right now? Like, if I needed something right now and I'm on Android、mm-hmm. and I don't want, you know, I can't use an Apple Watch. Is the Fitbit stuff the best choice? Is it the Garmin stuff, or does it depend on like the type of, like, does it depend if I want to be active and want to hike,、yeah. or if I just want to walk around and have like a little screen on my wrist for convenience、yeah. sake? Like, what it, what, what are the recommendations right now? The recommendation till today is still a Galaxy Watch. Samsung's、uh-huh. Galaxy Watch Active is really good, even the. Uh, if if you're more focused on fitness and like、mm-hmm. you're working out, if you want a more multi-purpose watch, the Samsung Galaxy Watch is also the li- the line to go for. If you're interested in collecting as much info about your body as possible, the Fitbit Sense is the you know it's pretty powerful.、Uh, it's got more sensors than any other fitness watch on the market.、Uh, it does like it, it temp- skin temperature and it uses that to monitor. All kinds of things like whether you have a fever onset or if you know your period is starting, for example.、Um, and then if you're a runner, people generally recommend the Garmin series. Like the Forerunner is a good series.、Mm-hmm. Or if you're not that, you know, into running, you could try a more multi-purpose Garmin, like a, a Vivo Smart, Vivo Move. For sure, for sure. They got there's they, a lot out there for Android. There's、people. a lot out there, but it seems like specialized, right? Not where it's like.、Yeah. 
if I'm an Apple user, right? And it's like, I, I kind of want something fun for my wrist. Um, you mm-hmm. could just get an Apple Watch and the Apple Watch will be fine for you as a casual user. And also pretty like pretty decent for you if you're an active uh, person who wants to exercise too, because that also ties into Apple Fitness Plus and everything. Mm-hmm. You always have the choice of getting a Garmin watch or Fitbit or whatever, but yes, it seems exactly. like Apple Watch is a nice default for everybody on iOS at least. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Apple Watch is the best for anyone using an iPhone. There's no there's no two ways about it. Mm-hmm. It has the best like messaging, uh, syncing and connectivity through your phone. It's I've been using the Apple Watch SE for a while now, and honestly, it's pretty good. It's pretty, pretty good. It's pretty, pretty good. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Let's move on to what we've been working on. Um, I am writing up something on Zack Snyder's Justice League cut, which is just breaking my brain. I'll talk more about this on the pop culture (laughs) side, but, you know, I'm talking about the impact of what this means for fans to basically clamor for this thing to exist and for Snyder and the cast to really support it too and for HBO to basically will it into existence because um, they're desperate and they need exclusive content for HBO Max. So uh, I'm talking about the impact of that, what that means for the future of creation. Like can fans just sit there and basically whine and create internet, uh, you know, petitions for everything and reshape the way content is made in the future? We're kind of seeing evidence of that right now, especially with this cut. So Keep an eye out for my piece about that. Earlier this week, I wrote up my experience with South by Southwest VR. I talked a bit about this last week, but I spent more time with it. Um, it, They were using this thing called VR chat to basically recreate um, all of Austin. And it was like, it's really, really interesting, really detailed. They had a cool like neon Blade Runner design for it too. But I also just going through is like, man, this is, this is a desert there is no, there's no humanity in here. It's a couple other people in VR headsets. Um, you could pull up like a virtual camera and either take photos, which I was doing, or do like virtual selfies. So it did feel like the worst part of South by, where it's just people in every like iconic spot holding their phones up to themselves and trying to be cute for Instagram um, rather than actually talking to each other or Aww. anything. So, yeah, it was it was kind of a lonely, desolate experience, and it just made me feel. As we're, we were moved on from the first year anniversary of the pandemic, it did make me feel a little like, man, I cannot wait until we can go back in person and do these events. Uh, South by was a thing where we would sometimes wait in line. We waited over two hours to see the premiere of Jordan Peele's Us, and we didn't get in. We waited, we waited in line. We were doing work. We were just like working on the sidewalk, and we got up to the theater right when, as like as they closed the the rope. I guess, because the theater got too full um, and just had to walk away. But at the same time, that was super frustrating and disappointing. But I also had fun, like, hanging out with everybody at Engadget. And we all just sat there and worked and, like, we're doing this thing. And it was disappointing, but it was disappointing as a collective experience. Yes. And I do miss all those little, those little things, even the disappointments of a live event. So maybe I'm just in my feelings. I don't know. Um, but I'm sure we all want to get outside and do things, right? Yeah, I, I was so... <laughs> Uh, I've been watching a lot of Kitchen Nightmares and then I started researching <laughs> Gordon Ramsay's restaurants and one of them is the uh-huh. Gordon Ramsay plane food uh, in London's Heathrow Airport Terminal 5 what? and I was looking at the menu. It's a whole, The whole concept is that like he makes these like airplane friendly boxes. This sounds incredibly sad, meals. but okay, go on, go on. Sounds amazing to me. I'm like, I can't wait to like go buy one of these boxes. I'll take it on the plane and just like stuff my face in a cramped little seat and just like that's true. Eat, that you is know. the ritual. The ritual of going on a flight yeah. is if you're if you're like a, a major flyer, right? You would know like I got to get some food and I'm not going to just yep. live with the plane food. I'm going to like sneak yep. something on. Yeah. Yeah. Water. <laughs> my water. My flight snacks and candy. Yep. Uh, my switch. And whatever l- delicious little meal I can get myself. So <laughs> next time I'm in Heathrow, I don't know how many years from now, I'm going to get myself a box from Gordon Ramsay's plain food. It Listen, we all have good, goals. Anyway. We need goals. Small goals. <laughs> yes. Like my yeah, goal, like honestly, goals. I do, I miss flying. I miss all the frustrations of flying and everything too. But the thing of just like saying, I'm just going to sit in the seat and three yep. hours later, I'm going to be in a completely different place. Like I kind of yep. really got used to that being a thing. I know yep. flying is bad for the environment. We're even once things get better, we're going to probably have to do a lot less flying. Um, but I do miss that sense of travel and the sense of like for going sure. to new places. Um, kind of related yeah. to all this, actually. Another thing I'm working on, which I'll just bring up here, 
I'm working on getting vaccinated for COVID. And I hope you are too. I was able to <laughs> um, secure one here um, in Georgia because of medical mm. conditions. Um, it is it is like a mess how our distribution is going. Um, I basically had to, I was lucky enough where I was able to sign up with my doctor and they sent me an alert saying, hey, you can actually sign up right now. I went to this mass vaccination site um, at an old abandoned mall outside of Atlanta and let me tell you guys, it is one of the most hopeful things I've seen over the last year. Okay, the idea that after all this, after all the mess, after a year of, you know, a government literally doing nothing to help us, uh, and then a government insurrection, and then a lot of other things happening, it felt really hopeful to go into a place and just see, like, competence and people being like, okay, stand here. You're gonna get. You're gonna. You're gonna be saved. You're gonna take this ticket. Take this line. Fill out this form. Go this safe. way. We got you. We got you. We have competence. <laughs> we know what we're doing. It feels really great to be somewhere where people know what they're doing. And also, everybody was just there celebrating the fact that yeah, we're we're getting through this. It's we have these miraculous vaccines. We could not have seen them actually <laughs> even being a thing last summer, right? Like these things came so quickly. They were approved really quickly. It is a miracle in many, in many senses. And the fact that we have these available, I hope more people try to take it because I, I feel I felt like it was an obvious thing. And maybe for a lot of our audience and for you, Sherlyn, and all of us in Gadget, mm -hmm. but talking to people around my neighborhood, and maybe it's just because I live in Georgia, there are people who, you know, I, I think I politically align with and I, I think are nice people, but they have skepticism. They're worried about the vaccine. They don't think they need it. They, you know, there, there are all these excuses I hear. Um, what we do know is that for the public good, for public health, if you can get vaccinated, please do. Please do, because it's the only way we're going to fight this. I don't know if you have any further thoughts on this, Sherlyn, or your journey to get vaccinated. I, I don't have any, like, medical conditions. I do have a bunch of allergies that, that might make it a little bit difficult for me. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm going to just talk to the doctor whenever I get there and be like, and hey, is it cool if I have They're this opening allergy? it up. Like, even in Georgia, which is mm -hmm. has been one of the most backward states when it's come to pandemic policy and whatever, as of today, every adult can get it. And given yep. um, President Biden's, like, push to basically have every adult vaccinated in time for July 4th cookout, uh, very symbolic of them. Uh, that means over the next few weeks, certainly by next month, most adults in America will be able to get it. The The question is, how do you get it? It's really mm -hmm. annoying. It's really difficult. One thing I will tell everybody, if you, um, if you live in the Southeast or anywhere where there's a Publix grocery store where they're doing shots, um, I was able to get like one for my wife, but you have to wake up at 7 a.m. Eastern on Thursday mornings refresh that website and hope you can lock something in. So yeah, our distribution strategy stinks. Hopefully it'll get better, but good luck everybody. It is worth the effort to try and do this. It's the only way we can fight back. What have you been working on, Sherlyn? Yeah, so <laughs> uh, I have been, uh, let's peel this thing back a little bit, how how my uh -huh. how I work, my process, my brain, whatever, our, our process is I uh, haven't been, publishing a lot of like big reviews or whatever lately and it causes me to feel a little bit unproductive at times mm -hmm. um i've done a lot of like interviews and a lot of the researching work and i'm doing a lot of secret stuff that i can't talk about <laughs> but um the, the 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 issue is sometimes we run into writer's block sometimes sure, we just sure. like oh how do i say this in a fun way it's, it's also been it, a year of us being super productive when the world yes. is falling apart like it's okay yes it's okay yeah. to like take that minute I, yeah. and be like uh this is hard. It's just it's just demoralizing yeah. to feel like, oh, I'm up against this wall. And but but I, I yeah. managed to find a little bit of inspiration. So hopefully this will come through soon. And next week you should hopefully see a bunch more things from me. But right now it's like I feel like I'm crashing into a wall mm -hmm. where like mm -hmm. either the people I need to get back to me aren't getting back to me or I just don't have the motivation to write something uh, that I find is a good read for you guys or for anyone, really. So, uh -huh. um. You know, I'd say stay tuned. Next week, this week, I did cover OnePlus, and, and, you know, I have some other news posts, I think, that went up, and I'm working on some stuff that I still can't talk about. It'll be fun to talk next week. Let's just say, it, let's just say it'll be fun to talk next week. It'll be fun. Um, I think, <laughs> yes. Sherlyn, you have overachiever disease like I do, which uh, mm -hmm. has haunted me throughout my childhood and certainly into yep. adulthood. Um, yep. I've, uh, it has also taken me a lot to get that under check because the world is falling apart. It's okay if you need to take a break. Please exactly. take some vacation time. I hope you can 
Find some time to relax at some point, Jerlyn. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Let's move on Speaking to of our relax. pop culture picks. Uh, what, what have you been watching or playing or whatever? Yeah. So <laughs> a few things. Uh-huh. One, you were talking about the Justice League Snyder Cut. 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 And uh, I want to hear your take on the black and white version at some point that it's really yeah. about to come out. But anyway. I was supposed to watch it last weekend, didn't get around to it because uh, started dinner too late, whatever, and then it was <laughs> too late to whatever. Anyway, so watched instead, watched Raya and the Last Dragon. Uh, I remember I had to talk to you about that. Mm-hmm. I Yeah, it's um, it's fine. It's, an okay, like, it, it's you know. They're it's actually not, surprisingly good. You know, as a Disney it, thing, it's fun. The yeah. art was really nice. Mm-hmm. The story was fine. Like, very hackneyed almost, I feel. <laughs> just because, like, you know what I mean? Like... But, but we uh, do, the, the, the core of that movie is that we need to learn to trust each other. I do think yeah. moving on from that's this pandemic, I can't trust anybody. I don't know. Hey, have you been vaccinated? Is that why you don't have a mask? Why are you so close? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't know <laughs> if I can trust you to keep my well-being or right, the social right. good. So I, it's a good message in that respect. Yeah, I, yeah. I agree with that. I just want to say that like my as uh, the problem is that I'm an adult watching this show. And so a lot of the voice <laughs> actors voices uh-huh. were very obvious to me yeah and it had this like effect of uh making their characters look like them even almost well daniel day um, kim's character looks like him look a lot sure. like he him. has his like Aquafina's chiseled human yeah. yeah aquafina's human character looks a lot like her too uh-huh. uh benedict wong i believe didn't look a lot like his character here's the mm-hmm. thing though it's it's when it's so clear to me in my head who these uh-huh. actors are. They're uh-huh. so clearly not Southeast Asian, though, uh-huh. that it really made a disconnect for me in that movie. Yeah. But anyway, that's 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 my take on Raya and the Last Dragon as a Southeast Asian person. Mm-hmm. Um, my real uh, uh, recommendation is not pop culture at all, because for pop culture, all I've been doing is binge watch Kitchen Nightmares. So <laughs> <laughs> my real recommendation for everyone is if you don't already use a session manager... You should, hmm. especially if you're someone like me who has a crap ton of Chrome tabs or, sure. or Firefox tabs open. Session Buddy is one of the best available. I don't want to go on too long about them because then it starts sounding like an ad. But I've tried one tab before and one tab just isn't the same because it doesn't like I don't think it's as automatically you know saved as Session Buddy does. Session Buddy saves your last three sessions by default. And it just, the interface is cleaner. OneNote just looks like it was written in 1997, and then nobody decided to update the UI. <laughs> uh, uh, sorry, not OneNote, one tab. One so tab, yeah. there's all of that. But yeah, hey, I didn't know if you if you're doing the thing I I used to do, which is go to bookmarks and bookmark all open tabs, and then save the date that you had all those tabs. What open year is this? What are you doing? Classes. <laughs> that's yeah that's what i've been doing up until like this week wow. and my cousin told me about session buddy so here you go free a freebie tip from my a cousin freebie tip from 20 2005 <laughs> whenever we started <laughs> having tab organization just in case you didn't already know you're an idiot like me <laughs> it's okay we can all be idiots uh you know session buddy session managers look into it all right uh is that it for you Shirley? yeah that's all my picks not pop culture but that's my pick <laughs> I want to quickly just shout out a couple of things. I saw the first episode for Made for Love, which is a Ooh. new HBO series. Uh, I saw the first three episodes. Yeah, you saw a bunch. Um, they yeah. usually had the first episode at South by 2. This is a series that is very tech-centric, right? It is about mm. a woman who is trying to escape from her tech billionaire husband, mm-hmm. who a guy, basically like the head of Google or something, who has developed uh, this chip that can mm-hmm. unite a couple's brains, I guess, into one. Like like to sort of. let them basically not have any secrets between them, see everything yep. that each other is saying. And um, the the thing of this show is that Kristen Milioti is trying to escape and she has this chip in her. And yep. this kind of abusive guy is just following her all the way. It's a comedy. It's kind of a comedy, but also like it is... It's an adult show. Like, there's a lot of dark humor it's in there. It's HBO Max. Yeah. Like, let's put it out there. It's, it's HBO, HBO Max. Max. <laughs> like, uh, there, there is, like, one of the first scenes is, like, how yep. he has created an, an orgasm meter. And um, the whole thing is that uh, she constantly gets reminders to rate her orgasm, which mm-hmm. I feel like we're not that far from that future. Like, I don't know how many times you have to, uh, you open an app on your phone. It's like, please, for the love of God review me on <laughs> itunes like are you are you enjoying this experience so it is a bit black mirror it's a bit um i don't know devs in a way too what did you think of the first few episodes you saw yes. 
So to me, it was very devs meets um, darn. What was it? I told you in our production meeting. It was mm. very devs meets yes, Black Mirror, but also oh, there's one other show that really reminded me of yeah, Silicon Valley yeah. kind of comes to mind here too. Um, yeah, maybe not not upload, but maybe upload. Anyhow, um, uh-huh. there's other actors in this that like. Um, Ray Romano's in it. I love and Ray. Time, put Ray Romano in a show. I'm gonna watch. It. Yeah, that's really. How I will we tell are you that. It. Yeah, it, and his scene, uh, Dev. You haven't seen the later episodes. I'm not gonna no. spoil it for you. But it, it, one of them is very shocking. Uh, <laughs> and uh, every time he appears, I think he he featured more heavily in episode two or episode three, both of mm-hmm. those episodes. And every time I see him, I'm like, that's Ray Romano. Like I have to Ray keep reminding Romano. myself, that's Ray Romano. Like, oh, oh, okay, okay. Anyhow, um, yeah, this show is is uh more adult. And it's kind of hard to watch because as a woman, I think it made it very hard to watch. Does, did but this remind you of the nest bedside thing that we talked about last week, Sherlyn, which I thought you know, was kind of terrifying? Yeah, there's there's little props in the first episode that remind are very reminiscent of that. Uh-huh. And then they live in this thing called the hub, which is very like high tech and futuristic. But then the well, rest it, of the world is It's a is desert compound gritty. with a fake sun. So her, yeah. she's literally living in a box. Yeah. And she yeah. had to escape a, the box. Yeah. yeah. I, I remember the show that reminded me off now. It's The Circle. It's yes, basically the, the premise of The Circle, the movie, mm-hmm. but executed, I think, better as a TV show, maybe. Um, interesting for sure. Not not like, uh, definitely not the same type of comedy that Let Ted Lasso is. I almost said Let Tesso. Ted Lasso. Uh, <laughs> it's not the same feel-good vibe. It's more like, I, I still have so many questions. This, no. Nothing feel-good. But I have so many questions. It's almost like a mystery. It's like... Yeah, but, you know, intriguing for sure. Intriguing. It's premiering on HBO Max on April 1st. We will be looking more into the show. Uh, Quickly want to shout out a movie I just saw over the weekend called Happily by Ben David Grabinski, who is a, you know, he's a, he's a writer. He's pretty big on Twitter, if you, if you follow media people. Ooh, Joel McHale. Um, it was Joel McHale. So this is a movie I really enjoyed. It is about a couple that is way too happy after like 15 oh. years, like they're still really into each other. Um, you know, they, they love each other in a way that seems unnatural. And everyone around them is like, guys, you are mm. you are aliens. You know, what is wrong with you? Um, that premise kind of leads into this weird, like almost sci-fi conspiracy thing. Um, Interesting. I'd say it's worth watching. I think you would enjoy it, Sherlyn. Also, it has a cast that I absolutely love. Carrie Bechet from Halting Catch Fire. Um, I will watch her in anything. But yeah, Joel McHale, Natalie Zia, Paul Shear. I love very much. He joined us on the oh, Slash cast sure. a couple of times. Uh, yeah. Stephen Root. Always great to see Stephen Root um, in anything. Natalie Morales. Uh, watch this movie, folks. It is a ton of fun. It is not what you expect. If you like like weird thrillers that are funny and super dark at times, yes. uh, but also yeah. kind of goes places. Like I think it's a lot of fun. It's happily. You can rent it or buy it on demand now. Okay. It sounds like the opposite of this other movie that I watched that I recommend you don't do not uh-huh. watch, which is Deadly Illusions. I have not heard of that, Davis. but I will take your word for it. Kristen Davis, Dermo Mulroney. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. Just don't watch. And also, don't yeah, watch. I watched the Justice League Snyder Cut. And uh, hey, <laughs> go listen to my review at the Slash Film Cast about that, because I have complicated feelings about this thing. It's four hours long. Of course, it's a deeper and more like you can cover more than the Joss Whedon cut of the movie did in two hours. But also... There, I think there ultimately there is a good three-hour movie in this four-hour, you know, overlong <laughs> slog fest. So I was not a huge fan. Um, my co-host liked it more. I'd love to know what you think, Sherlyn, when you do finally get to yeah, see it. Yeah, I can't wait to watch it, really. And that's it for the episode this week, everyone. Thank you, as always, for listening. Our theme music is by game composer Dale North. Our outro music is by our very own Terrence O'Brien. The podcast is produced by Ben Elman. You can find Davindra online at... At Davindra on Twitter and podcasting about movies and TV at the Slash Filmcast at SlashFilm.com. If you want to tell me the names of Southeast Asian actors that could have been voice actors for people <laughs> in Raya, The Last Dragon, uh-huh. hit me up. I'm at Sherlyn Lowe on Twitter. Email us your thoughts and feedback at podcast.engadget.com. Please leave us a review on iTunes because that'll really help us find people and people find us. And subscribe on anything that gets podcasts, including Spotify.